It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Shoot them dead. And this is what is, uh, the human rights idiots are trying to complain. You know, when I say I shoot them dead, I'd prefer to shoot them in the heart or in the head. If you insist on a drug war, I will kill you all. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about the Philippines and its controversial president, Rodrigo Duterte, whose term ends in June next year. After weeks of speculation, Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte has, through a representative, filed his candidacy for senator. The move comes after he publicly rebuked his own daughter, Davao City Mayor Sara Duterte, for running as vice president and running mate of the son of the late dictator Ferdinand Marcos, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Earlier this week, President Duterte filed his candidacy for a Senate seat in next year's elections. Unable to run for another term as president, he had vowed to retire from politics. He was widely expected to back his daughter, Sara Duterte Carpio, to be the next president. But in the end, she submitted papers to be a vice presidential candidate on another ticket. President Duterte's bid to be a senator suggests he plans to continue to play a role in politics and perhaps shield himself against political rivals. The chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court is seeking to open an investigation into the Philippine government's war on drugs. President Rodrigo Duterte's regime has killed at least 6,000 suspected drug dealers. The ICC claims this could amount to crimes against humanity. From bullets to ballots, after decades of armed conflict, millions of Filipinos voted whether to accept or reject an autonomous government designed to provide greater powers for Muslims in the southern Philippines. Duterte is best known internationally for his brash language associated with the anti-drugs campaign. We just heard him promising to kill drug dealers. Just a few weeks ago, the International Criminal Court opened a case against him for extrajudicial killings associated with his drug policy. But there's a lot more to Duterte's legacy. 
Under his watch, a peace process in the Muslim-majority region of Mindanao, where the president himself is from, has picked up pace. That's helped turn the page on a decades-long war that killed about 120,000 people. Duterte also tried, though failed, to get a peace process going with communist rebels. Abroad, he attempted, again with mixed results, to pivot away from the US, with which the Philippines has a mutual defence treaty, toward China, the Philippines' main trading partner. So how should we see Duterte's presidency? To talk about all this, we're delighted to be joined by Georgi Engelbrecht, Crisis Group's Philippines expert, who's produced a prolific amount of work over the past few years, on Mindanao especially, but also on the ICC process and the Philippines more broadly. Georgi, welcome on. Hi, Richard. Hi, Nas. Thanks for having me. So perhaps, Georgi, we could start. Just tell us a little bit about sort of what happened with these uh, presidential bids. That's got to hurt, right? Your own daughter running on a rival's ticket, essentially? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the Philippines, it's all in the family, right? And I guess it's a classic case of reality being stranger than fiction in a way. So last weekend, a number of events occurred that made Philippine politics really a top-notch political drama or even, you know, a performance art, so to speak. And it, it really showed that in the country, it's more about personalities and not parties or ideology uh, that matters. So the daughter of Rodrigo Duterte, Sarah Duterte Carpio, announced that she will run for president. Hours later, reports suggested that her father would also run for the vice presidency. That would have essentially meant that both would compete, which is a very surreal situation and a bit of a family dispute, right? But the story ended not with a bang, but rather a whimper, because the anticipated clash was not fully realized in the end, because Duterte filed his candidacy for senator, while his daughter basically committed to be the running mate of Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the, the son of the former dictator. So what we see here is a consequence of the political unraveling within Duterte's inner circle and his coalition, because this infighting has basically led to former supporters of Duterte leaving his party, and Duterte's daughter was not on board with her father's political camp either, particularly with Senator Bongo, one of Duterte's if not the closest advisor. And lastly, Duterte also had not a clear and coherent message about his succession. It is as if, you know, he did not want to choose between his daughter and his lieutenant or his advisor. So now Duterte is still not giving up because just yesterday he again tried to endorse um, his favorite ticket consisting of his daughter for vice president and his aide Bongo for president. He does not want to leave the playing field to Marcos. And Marcos, in turn, has clearly said he is not aligned with Duterte's administration. And there still could be a final plot twist if Marcos is disqualified by the Commission of Elections because he still deals with a tax evasion case and a conviction for failure to file income tax returns in the 80s. So the electoral code would essentially disqualify anyone who is facing such proceedings. And just so listeners understand, Duterte's daughter, uh, Sarah Duterte, she's actually at the moment the mayor of Davao, right, which is where Duterte was mayor before he became president. So she's not a political novice. Exactly. So she's also well experienced in local politics. And even her siblings, the sons of Duterte, also play a role in local politics in Davao. So in that sense, it's again, it's a political dynasty um, in a particular region of Philippines and in Mindanao. So, Gyorgi, how popular is Duterte, the father, right now? That's a great question. I mean, his ratings continue to drop, but they're still relatively high. 
So the approval ratings are somewhat between 50 and 60 percent, depending on the survey. But back in June, a few months ago, the numbers were even higher. So things appear to be changing slowly but surely. He took a hit and the reasons why his ratings basically took a hit was also partially related to the COVID pandemic and the way how government dealt with it, as well as allegations of corruption that evolved around, you know, the response to COVID. But I can imagine once he's out, there could be another wave of nostalgia hitting the Philippines. Duterte still remains very popular, especially in Mindanao, um, not only his hometown of Davao, but also in other regions. Um, his language often strikes a chord with Filipinos. For example, during his time as mayor, he actually had his own TV show. It went by the name of Gikan Samasa Para Samasa, which means from the masses for the masses, kind of similar to what Hugo Chavez had back in Venezuela. So the political climate in the Philippines is definitely less polarized than in other countries where we had similar figures in politics like Duterte. And I also believe that Filipinos do compartmentalize Duterte and distinguish him to an extent from other persons in, in the government. He still carries this persona of bravado, charisma, and maybe he may sound like a drunk uncle, but he's still your or our drunk uncle. And that makes him still relatively appealing. I can imagine a future episode on drunk uncle politics around the world. Uh, but until then, can you tell us a, a little bit about the so-called drug war? What has that involved and where are things now? So the drug war, I think, is essentially emblematic of Duterte's approach to politics in general, because he extrapolated his experiences from his hometown to the wider country. So in Davao, when he was a mayor over several terms, Duterte developed his image as a very tough mayor, going by the moniker of the Punisher, right, um, on a very strong anti-crime ticket. He promised to rid the city of drugs and to develop Davao, and this approach highly resonated with the masses. So until now, many residents are grateful to him, but the dark side of Duterte's term in Davao was the existence of the so-called Davao Death Squad, an anti-crime body held responsible for extrajudicial killings. They were said to go back to the 90s. So we have actually UN reports directly implicating Duterte, but perhaps what's also important to note is that Davao was not the only town in the Philippines where you had this modus operandi, because many provinces have a long history of police vigilantism. So in 2016, when Duterte is running for the highest office in the country, he goes by the same playbook. He promises law and order, and he threatens to kill every drug dealer and user. So when he gets elected, the campaign again is getting unleashed. But this time, not only in one town, but across the archipelago. So what we have are you know, law enforcement agencies conducting many raids, um, not only in poor areas of Manila, but even in other provinces. So usually that led to a high body count and the government claimed that the police had to use self-defense against criminals. So the killings were justified. They also said that a number of these murders were perpetrated by vigilantes. So shifting away responsibility. Reliable numbers are very disputed and I think, in fact, it is essentially a war of narratives. So we have official government figures that talk about 6,000 plus drug dealers. Other estimates 
say that we have a wider range, maybe between 12,000, 30,000, or even a bit more. And I think it's important to note that the reality of the war on drugs was that it was also a war on the poor. So many street dealers in, in slums of Manila were killed, but backers of the drug trade are actually still said to be around. And people actually wonder how effective was this war. And how popular have these efforts been, this uh, campaign of violence against drug dealers and users? Well, I think with respect to the main objective, Filipinos did support Duterte's intentions, because ultimately that's also his whole persona, meaning he, he wants to do the right thing for the average Filipino and to improve his and her life. But of course, the methods how to achieve these goals, that's a different question. And I think many people probably would agree with the principle and the objective to, you know, turn the country into a safe place where there are not so many drug gangs and drug lords. But ultimately, there are also people who get disappointed with the way violence was unleashed. And Yogi, we've had a number of discussions in different contexts where it appears that ICC investigations or indictments have had a complicated fallout in the country itself. What is the perception of the ICC investigation in the Philippines? Yeah, that's a very good question, Nas. I mean, on the one hand, you have people who are defending the president, not necessarily related to the, the acts he was accused of, but also because Duterte also made many Filipinos proud by standing up and not hesitating in expressing his views. So, for example, when they look at the ICC, they see an abstract entity. They, they are not really imagining it as a representative of international justice because it's hard to fathom that there is actually such a thing. So for them, they would defend their president and say, well, he tried to do the best. Other people, of course, from the critical sectors of society, from the media and from the academe, they're well aware of the proceedings. And they're also well aware that certain steps of Duterte have to be looked at at the backdrop of this ICC case. So for them, obviously, this is a real danger to the president. But for the average Filipino, it's hard to say because, you know, if you were not affected, then you might think that the drug war was actually, you know, good. But if you lost people and you saw your neighbors being killed, that's, of course, a slightly different story. And Georgi, the ICC is going to have its work cut out to pursue this investigation because Duterte's government has, in essence, said it's not going to cooperate. It's withdrawn from the Rome Statute. So what prospects do you see for the, the ICC investigations? I think the ICC in general is in a very peculiar position, um, right? Because actually they get support from the highest court in the country because the Philippine Supreme Court said that the government needs to cooperate with the ICC and it should not be discharged from proceedings. So this is an element of we got to accept um, international law. And ultimately, the prosecutors at the ICC, I think, they are aware of the difficulties that lie ahead. The preliminary investigation was already a few years old. And that's why the prosecution was probably already gathering information, evidence, because they precisely know that things will be complicated. And I think they can also draw on a long tradition of Filipino human rights and legal activism, and also a number of very good and competent international lawyers, 
We have victim groups that were fairly outspoken. We have relatives of those who have been killed giving testimony. And I think the civil society in the Philippines in general is, is fairly active. And lastly, I think in the age of Zoom, nothing is impossible. So perhaps people are also thinking creatively outside of the box. Let's move to uh, Mindanao. Duterte inherited this peace process with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. There was a peace deal signed in 2014, two years before Duterte came to power. He's been quite supportive of, of, of that. I mean, he's, he's from Mindanao himself. And to some degree, he's helped move forward that peace process, getting key legislation through the Philippines Congress about the Banks of Moro Autonomous Region that was created by that peace agreement. Do you want to say sort of a word or two about how Duterte's contributed to what's happened in Mindanao? Yeah, sure. So you're right. The peace process actually reached its high point first in 2014 with the comprehensive agreement on the Banks of Moro. Um, and the willingness to negotiate and reach a peace deal came from Duterte's predecessor, Aquino, who actually passed away a few months ago. He and the chairman of the MILF met in Tokyo in 2011, and they really set the stage for a breakthrough in negotiations. It's just that Aquino's misfortune was that, following a botched police raid in 2015, public opinion turned against the peace deal. Um, this incident resulted in the death of more than 40 policemen, more than a dozen of MILF fighters, and also civilians. The peace process really lost traction at that stage. And here we have Duterte. And like you correctly pointed out, as someone from Mindanao, and also as someone who knew rebel leaders of different groups, he definitely understood the conflict's complexity. And in fact, he actually claims that he himself is part Moro. So when he took over as president, he let his peace advisors work on the legislation that was needed to create this autonomous region. He committed to peace. He regularly met the MILF leadership. And finally, he gave his blessing for the Bangsamor Autonomous Region in Muslim Mindanao or the Barm. And in that sense, he definitely completed what Aquino started. And I think Duterte was also, as a person, very open in engaging the Muslim population of Bangsamoro and Mindanao more broadly, particularly because even in Davao, he had experiences with all types of communities. And that made him really skilled in navigating this very complex um, field. And Gyorgi, do you want to say a little bit about what's happening now in, in Mindanao and the, the Bangsamoro Autonomous Region? They've just extended the transitional period by another three years. Are things still on track? Are people generally supportive of what's happening there? Yeah, sure. So I think um, there are two recent developments that are really important to highlight. So first, like you said, at the end of October, Duterte effectively postponed the 2022 parliamentary elections in Bangsamoro. So therefore, he extended the transition period for another three years. Um, the Bangsamoro interim government will remain in place, but its composition might still be changed. But what was really helpful and effective was that the decision followed almost one year of extreme political uncertainty about this extension. And the uncertainty was characterized by political conflict and also heated rhetoric between the MILF and traditional interests in the Bangsamoro that are politicians and very influential clan leaders. So now the MILF seems to be enjoying a tactical victory, while at the same time there are expectations that now they will deliver peace dividends even more so to their people. And secondly, just last week, the MILF actually 
has also continued to, as the peace agreement says, put their weapons beyond use or to decommission its combatants. In the peace agreement of 2014, the rebels committed to disarm their 40,000 strong guerrilla army that has approximately around 7,000 organizationally owned weapons. One third was already demobilized before the pandemic, but since then the process was just stuck, obviously because of COVID. And one of the reasons was that the MILF felt that the government would not fulfill its part of the bargain. So they did not receive um, socioeconomic packages in, in its totality. Um, the government also failed to disarm private armies. But ultimately, um, all these measures that together go by the name of normalization, they still, you know, they're being discussed and negotiated. So both sides are still continuing the dialogue. And even though it's slow, it's still an indicator of commitment and a sign that things are essentially moving. So for now, both need to deliver. The government needs to deliver and show that it doesn't only want to disarm rebels, but actually look at the issue holistically. And the key challenge for the MILF is, particularly after receiving the extra time, is to build and strengthen institutions and the bureaucratic apparatus to deliver a peaceful Banksamoro. So something else that happened during Duterte's rule was this big takeover of Marawi, a city in Mindanao, by militants who claimed that they were linked to ISIS, to the Islamic State. They held this town for, for about five months. There was this campaign to get them out, a lot of intense fighting, hundreds of thousands of people displaced. How do you rate how Duterte handled the Marawi siege and the threat from Islamist militants? Well, you know, Marawi was a tragedy on so many levels, and I remember it particularly well because on the first day of the siege, I was actually in the city of Marawi myself. So when I left with some of my colleagues um, during a prior assignment in Mindanao, the battle already started. The whole episode started with a raid on a hideout of a top militant, Isnilon Hapilan, which then resulted in the attempted takeover of the whole city by these ISIS-inspired groups, surprising almost everybody. So I remember when, when Duterte declared martial law and his defense secretary announced that the siege will be over in a few days or weeks, I had people texting me saying it will go on for months and we really need to prepare for the worst. And I think the hardest time for the government to respond to the threat militarily was really in the beginning, because that's where most of the casualties for government forces um, occurred. I think Duterte essentially let his generals do the job. He probably did what many other politicians and leaders would have done to basically try to find a way to crush these groups. Um, there were some attempts to negotiate, but essentially they were fruitless and they didn't really go anywhere. The Philippine military also had to learn by doing because they were not so much engaged in urban battles before. So ultimately, after five months, Duterte basically let his, his chief of staff and his other top press deal with the insurgents. And we unfortunately had massive displacement, like you pointed out, almost 360,000 individuals. Also, a large chunk of the town was destroyed. And ultimately, we don't really know exactly what happened in the run-up to the conflict, or we don't even have a clear analysis of what transpired during these five months. Right now, for Duterte, some people look at him as a savior who defeated and crushed the militants. 
For others, he's the one who essentially blessed airstrikes and basically, you know, justified the destruction of hundreds of homes. What is more critical right now is, of course, reconstruction. And reconstruction have been delayed for many years already. Bureaucracy is a part of it. And now the government says that until, you know, Duterte's term will end in June, most of the public infrastructure will be rebuilt. But it's a promise. And a lot of these promises have been given in the past, sometimes delayed. So essentially, the, the people who are now living in the evacuation camps probably are not really sure whom to believe or what to believe anymore. For them, it's really mostly about survival. And in that sense, the question is probably still open about how will Duterte be seen about that episode in particular. Gergi, the... MILF has often positioned itself as an anti-colonial organization with with anti-colonial aims. What is your sense of the role of Islamic militancy and jihadism in, in the conflict in Mindanao? Yeah, I mean, that's a very great question. I think the MILF's predecessor rebel movement, the Moral National Liberation Front, was um, in many ways a very secular movement. So the MILF in that sense broke off from the MNLF, particularly under consideration of a more religiously oriented struggle. But ultimately, the experiences of war and peace talks and essentially the prospects of achieving autonomy have really morphed this movement into a fairly moderate force, although it has, like so many other armed movements, different wings or factions, so to speak. Now, after Marawi, um, we had a very peculiar situation because Marawi was in a way the pinnacle, but also the last time when these different militant groups outside the MILF managed to be that strong. Basically, after most of these fighters were killed, the rest got scattered across the Bangsamoro region. Until now, they are remaining increasingly under military pressure and hundreds of fighters have actually surrendered to the army or local authorities. They lack a unifying leader, they lack outside support, and they also lack, to a certain extent, a clear-cut ideology. They do sustain themselves by relying on clan networks and kinship ties with communities, with villagers, but even, you know, MILF. And also they benefit from local political support, as well as illicit economies. For example, there have been linkages between some of these insurgents and criminal syndicates, so ultimately, most of these groups have a very local outlook, even though they also tend to use jihadist rhetoric. At this point, we have at least four groups that have pledged allegiance to ISIS, but for now, this is largely aspirational. And whilst we have heard that some have welcomed the victory of the Taliban in Afghanistan, we don't know exactly what it will mean in practice, because these groups are really under pressure right now. So most of them are actually splinter factions of the MILF. And the important thing to note here is that they really differ in the sub-regions of the Bangsamoro. So for example, we have the Bangsamoro Islamic Freedom Fighters that operate in central Mindanao. And then we have the Abu Sayyaf group, a rather notorious and infamous criminal, maybe we can say network of networks um, that has been operating in the Sulu archipelago in the islands of Bangsamoro. But for now, it seems that even on that theater, things have, you know, quieted down. Not to mention that the remnants of the group that originally took over um, Marawi 
are really laying low and they're not able to capitalize on the frustrations of the displaced Moros in, in Marawi city. And Georgi, tell me just to push a little bit more on the topic of Islamist militancy in, in Mindanao. I mean, the Abu Sayyaf group you know, used to be quite notorious when I mean, it was named after this famous old Afghan Mujahideen commander, uh, Sayyaf. But over the last few years, it and many of the other groups, they seem to sort of be splintered, much smaller, really tied up very much in local politics, even village politics. And, and the whole sort of militant scene is now very fractious and localized. I mean, is that right? Yeah, exactly. But I think we still cannot exclude that, you know, this basically a long tradition and a, and a decades-old history of resistance against the state. And I think oftentimes religion played a key role in mobilizing people. In Mindanao, many people were really making that point that we might fight amongst ourselves, but if we have a common enemy, then we have to be together. And I think right now, the, the energy and the importance of the peace process are really something that tend to keep these groups in check. And also the fact that there's no credible alternative that is on the ground because um, there's no leader that brings with himself a certain moral you know, leadership role that could probably gather people around his person and basically provide an alternative to the approach of the MILF. Which is interesting because you know some of these leaders of the militant groups make a point that the MILF essentially sold out and that they do not represent the interests of the Bangsamoro people anymore. But if you're an average Bangsamoro and you look at your life, that it's now getting better to some extent, where you don't see violence all the time, then you might think, why should we fight again? Because we achieved what we wanted to achieve. But personally, I would not be surprised if, again, these village politics or these municipal politics might still be extrapolated to the next level if we experience a crisis of the peace process or if we have an ideological drive that comes somehow out of nowhere. And Gergi, in another context in which Duterte seems to have made efforts towards peacemaking, can you tell us more about the communist insurgency and Duterte's efforts in that regard? Yeah, so the, the, the conflict between the Philippine government and the communist rebels is just another long-lasting internal conflict in the country. It's probably Asia's oldest communist insurgency, I think, and it has really been defined by a cycle of negotiations and, and violence. So I think the interesting part again about Duterte was that when he started out, there was a honeymoon phase of his administration with the communist movement. He had excellent relations with the armed wing of the Communist Party, the New People's Army or NPA, uh, as a mayor of Davao. He talked to commanders and he knew what this movement was all about. And the founder of the Communist Party of the Philippines, Jose Maria Sison, was actually Duterte's teacher at university. So it wasn't a surprise that Duterte started the peace talks again and that people were actually very hopeful for a final end to that conflict as well. But ultimately, you know, all love was lost because by December 2017, Duterte declared the Communist Party and its armed wing as terrorist groups. And that was mostly motivated by two interacting reasons. So first, we had violence on the ground and clashes between the, the rebels and the military. And we also had 
hardening positions from both sides because some communists were very hardline and they continued attacks despite the peace talks. And likewise, the military was very antagonistic to these negotiations as well, particularly when they see that the hostilities did not necessarily disappear. So when the NPA attacked the presidential security group, I think around July 2017, and also killed policemen a few months later, the back-channel talks, the formal talks, were all cancelled. So at present, the government is really conducting counterinsurgency. It does not seem to believe in a negotiated solution, even though it sometimes talks about localized peace talks. And it really intensified efforts to go beyond the military structure of the communist movement and to target leftist organizations, civil members of the movement, even academics. And that has been also called rat tagging, which has been a fairly contentious issue in the Philippines until now. And Georgi, how, how much the country is still affected by the communist insurgency? Well, it's not like every province features um, communist fronts, but probably around three quarters or up to 80% of the Philippine countryside have experienced conflict, even though the exact levels of intensity differ. For example, in Mindanao, it has been traditionally a place where the government has been fighting the, the rebels for decades. But there are also other islands, not even too far from Manila, where you still had some of these clashes. They have reduced in intensity and in numbers, but it's still not over yet. Gary, let's take a turn to Philippine foreign policy. How should we understand Duterte's turn to China and what is the sense at this point of balancing relations between the U.S. and China? Yeah, so Duterte's mantra from the very beginning was what he was calling as independent foreign policy. And of course, it's almost a no-brainer that every country needs to be independent. And in the Philippine constitution, it's really laid out as a principle. Um, so for Duterte, it became really a concept uh, that he used to showcase his preferences. At the start of his term, he announced his separation from the United States after Western powers criticized his drug war. Now, who did he turn to? Beijing. Aiming to have friendly relations with China is not new for the Philippines, because Gloria Macabagal Arroyo, the president that I mentioned earlier, also tried to strengthen ties with Beijing, particularly economically. But at the same time, she was a major US ally, particularly after 9-11. So, she tried to hedge between both superpowers. Aquino, her successor, wanted to talk with Beijing, but essentially a series of incidents maneuvered him towards collision course with China. And that's what Duterte precisely wanted to avoid. He wanted to try to settle differences through negotiations, and he aimed to separate the maritime disputes in the South China Sea from other aspects of the relationship. But ultimately, this pivot probably did not work out as expected. Um, first, even though China is crucial for Philippine economy, um, the initial commitments to invest into the Philippines failed to bear fruit. The Belt and Road Initiative, for example, was really sold as something that could really reach Manila and the Philippines, but it hasn't worked out. And secondly, the maritime calm in, in the South China Sea has also not lasted. So there were a couple of misunderstandings around the Spratly Islands, issues about Filipino fishermen not being able to fish in its own uh, exclusive economic zone, 
and Chinese maritime intrusions. So when Duterte tries to open up to China and he's faced with all these other developments, he probably came to realize that, especially around the time of the pandemic, that something's not right with the pivot. And that meant, again, improved relations with the United States. So Washington has really provided support to the Philippines in battling the, the, the pandemic. It assured Manila of assistance, um, seemingly leaving no doubt in case of support, in case there's an armed clash in the South China Sea. And in turn, now the Philippines seemingly is not even hedging anymore. It's more about recommitment to the alliance with Washington. And now you might actually wonder, well, if we look at Duterte as a very transactional player, could it be that he basically wanted to squeeze out concessions and that he was not happy with the United States at first, but basically used his political acumen to make sure that he gets what he wants? I think it's probably really hard to say because there are enough people who do not think Duterte is a hardcore strategist. For now, the alliance is seemingly restored and intact, but I think the next president uh, is a known unknown. So will Manila continue this path and fully commit to the alliance, or will it still try to be friendly with China, and what will be the consequence of that? Yeah, and Georgi, we'll have to have you back on with some other colleagues to talk about the, the South China Sea. But if you sort of reflect back on the past few years of Duterte's presidency, and of course there's still some months to go, but I mean, it is this sort of interesting combination. You have this thuggish rhetoric you know, combined with the populism, but then you have this element of, of peacemaker too. How do you sort of look back on his legacy? How do you think he'll be remembered as a, as a president in the Philippines? Well, I think some are already arguing that, well, it's too early to tell, or they would say it depends and of course, there are many partisan accounts. We can read about people defending him, saying he was the greatest president the Philippines ever had, or the complete opposite of it. I do believe that he's essentially a paradox. So he was not hesitant in pointing out that there are contradictions within the Philippines and its elite democracy. He, he was not afraid of going after oligarchs. But essentially, he's also a product and a source of a political dynasty in its own right. Most of his children are politicians. He committed to the peace process in Mindanao, but during the Battle of Marawi, hundreds of thousands of Moros had to flee, and the peace talks with the communists broke down. So similarly to the drug war, the state prevailed, the state is seemingly safe, but at what cost? He also committed to upgrading um, Philippine defense capabilities, but most of the military still occupied fighting insurgency, not necessarily strengthening external defense. And he had massive economic ambitions, and I think they were deeply rooted in his desire to improve the lives of millions of Filipinos. But ultimately, he also benefited from the sound policies of his predecessor. And now he's overseeing a weakened economy and prospects of recession. He ran against corruption, both in Davao and the national position as president. He cited massive cases of fraud in his presidential speeches. He fired officials. But now a large scandal is actually contributing to his slowly sinking approval ratings. And lastly, he came to power supported by vital political interests, such as the Marcoses or other political players. He was smart in playing with them and working his way around. But now his party is in disarray, if not falling apart. So I think these are really these contradictions that are there on this balance sheet. And I think it's very uneven. And ultimately, it's history and Filipinos 
who will finally judge him. Georgi, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including Georgi's work on the Philippines, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producer, Sam Mednick, and to Finn Johnson. And thanks, as ever, to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question or a comment if you have them. If you like the show, leave us a positive rating or review. And we hope you'll all join us again next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.